and welcome to The Alchemical Mind. This is The Hermetica Part 2. If you have not listened to the first episode, you don't really need to, but you probably want to if you have never read The Hermetica or have no idea what it's about. I'm not going to do any introductions on what The Hermetica is, I did that in Episode 1, so because this is Part 2, I just want to get right into it. And in Part 1, we kind of talked a little bit about the nature of the universe according to the Hermetica. So in part two, we're going to talk about humanity's relationship to the universe and to a tomb, to the primal mind, to God. I want to kick right in. Again, as I mentioned in the first episode, I am reading off of the Hermetica, The Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy. So uh, if you have a different copy, your text might be different. I explained why in the first episode. Let's get right into it, and let's talk about man is a marvel. Now, as I mentioned on the first episode, when you are listening to me uh, talk about these particular texts, be aware of the language that is used, because as I mentioned in the first part, there is a lot of symbolism in the types of words that are chosen uh, to convey the message, and there is a lot of kind of cross-hatching between different disciplines. So this is not purely a religious text. It is not purely a philosophical text. It is not purely alchemy or science or anything like that. It is a mixture of all those things, and all those things are one, just like a tomb. So let's get started. A tomb is first. The cosmos is second, and man is third. A tomb is one. The cosmos is one, and so is man. For like the cosmos, he is whole, made up of different diverse parts. The maker made man to govern with him, but if man accepts his function fully, he becomes a vehicle of order in the cosmos. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the Judeo-Christian tradition, you are very familiar with this exact thing. Because when God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden, he gives them reign over all creatures of the earth. So this is kind of... a uh, a similar example but this is a little bit different because the way that this has been interpreted in the judeo-christian tradition is that it basically means that humanity can do whatever the hell they want with god's creation they're in charge of it so if they want to uh you know kill the animals if they want to destroy the forest or whatever that's their right because that's what god put them here for and of course, that's completely ludicrous. If you listen to part one, you will know what I'm about to say. It's absurd. Because why would God create the universe and then put man in it in order to destroy it? It's completely preposterous. But man can serve as an agent of change. So again, if you didn't listen to the first part, you might want to go back in which we talked about the purpose of time as a mechanism of change within the universe. Man may know himself and so know the cosmos by being aware that he is an image of a tomb and of the cosmos. He differs from other living things in that he possesses mind. But of course this is saying that the reason that we are different from animals and plants is that we, we have that aspect of God that makes God God and that is mind. So when you think of a passage like and you know God created man in his own image, it doesn't necessarily mean that God has two arms and two legs and hair and looks like a, a bipedal ape. 
but it means that we were created with the same aspect of the creator, which is mind, because mind creates all through imagination, through speaking the word. Through mind he may consume with the cosmos, commune with the cosmos, excuse me, which is the second god, and by thought he may come to knowledge of a tomb, the one god. The human body encloses pure mind, as if within a walled garden which shelters and secludes it, so that it may live in peace. And of course, this is kind of where you start getting the duality of why we fail to understand the true nature of reality. Because while we contain this infinite mind within us, a piece of the infinite mind that the primal mind has given us, that a tomb has given us, it is sheltered and secluded in the walled garden, the garden of physical flesh. And this is going to become a little more important in some of the later passages as we go through this book. Man has this twofold nature. In his body he is mortal, and in his intelligence he is immortal. He is exalted above heaven, but is born a slave to destiny. He is bisexual, as his father is bisexual. He is sleepless, as his father is sleepless. Yet he is dominated by carnal desires and lost in forgetfulness. This is a, a common theme throughout, of course, not just the Hermetica and Egyptian mythology and symbolism, but through many different traditions around the world. And this is, you know, if you're familiar with Graham Hancock's work, it's one of his favorite phrases. We're a species with amnesia. We have forgotten who we really are. Why that is? I mean, you can ask different people and you can get different answers. You can get into conspiracy if you'd like. We're not going to do that here because that's, that, that's not what this podcast is about. Of all beings that have soul, only man has a twofold nature. One part, called the image of a tomb, is single, undivided, spiritual, and eternal. The other part is made of the four material elements. So again, this is where we have the tie-in to alchemy, which of course come from alchemet, the knowledge that comes out of Egypt. Egypt used to be called Kemet. And the four elements, of course, air, water, fire, earth. Those are the things that create all of the material universe. And it's very simple symbology, but if you start looking at the material world, this is exactly how things are formed. They are created through these four elements, four primal elements. And of course, the fifth element being the primal mind. One comes from the primal mind. It has the power of the creator and is able to know a tomb. The other is put in man by the revolution of the heavens. As above, so below. We're going to dive into that with uh, the rest of this and in further segments of this text as well. Man is the most divine of all beings, for among all living things, a tomb associates with him only, speaking to him in dreams at night. Talked about this many times, the mystical experience, psychedelic experience. Man is special among all creatures because man, and by man, of course, I mean humanity, has the element of mind that a tomb has imbued in him. All other living things inhibit only one part of the cosmos. Fishes in water, animals on the earth, birds in the air. Men penetrates all these elements. With his sense of sight, he even grasps the heavens. Now, of course, the Egyptians wouldn't have known that we are at a point in our civilization that we can physically go out into the heavens, right? We get get on a spaceship, go to the moon, go to Mars, go wherever. Unless you believe some of the conspiracy theories, of course. But this is what it's saying. Man can do whatever man puts his or her mind to. Because the mind 
is a primal element of Atum. And because we are imbued with mind, we can do it. To speak without fear, human beings are above the gods of heaven. And of course, by gods, Hermes here is talking about the planets. Or at least they're equal. For the gods will never pass their celestial boundaries and descend to earth. But a man may ascend to heaven. And what is more, he may do so without leaving the earth. So vast an expanse can his power encompass by a tomb's will. Humankind is compacted of both divinity and mortality. He is more than merely mortal and greater than the purely immortal. Now this is really interesting because this says a lot about the nature of humanity. We're not just animals that are perfectly content in going about our daily lives, going out, getting food, getting sleep, procreating, going out, getting food, go to sleep, procreate. We're much more than that because we have the element of mind. Man is a marvel due honor and reverence. He takes on the attributes of the gods, as if he were one of their number. Of course, by the attributes of the gods, he's talking about the attributes of the different planets. So each planet is assigned a different element of the universe, right? And if you're familiar with Roman or Greek mythology, you're aware of all these things, right? Mars is the god of war. Uh, you know, Venus is the goddess of love, things like that. So we have all these emotions within us, as above, so below. And this is kind of the correlation between the, the deep mystical aspects of the planets and how they impact humanity. So if you're into astrology, you may be very familiar with any of these concepts. Uh, even if you're not, I'm sure you've heard of a horoscope, right? That This is the idea behind these things, where the rotation of the, the spheres, the mystical spheres, the celestial spheres, creates music that resonates within us, that makes us do certain things and influences our everyday lives, both literally and figuratively. He is familiar with the gods because he knows he springs from the same source. He raises reverent eyes to heaven above and tends the earth below. He is blessed by being the intermediary. Now, I talked about this a little bit on Twitter a few weeks ago, where we often miss a key aspect of the phrase, as above, so below. As above, so below is true, without a doubt. Everything that happens in the heavens, there's a reflection of it here on earth. But the key piece that's always missing is that man is the horizon. We are that center point between the heavens and the earth. He loves all below him and is loved by all above him. Confident of his divinity, he throws off his solely human nature. He has access to all. His keenness of thought descends to the depths of the sea. Heaven is not too high for the reach of his wisdom. His quick wits penetrate the elements. Air cannot blind his mental vision with its thickest fogs. Dense earth cannot impede him. Deep water cannot blur his gaze. Man is all things. Man is everywhere. Man not only receives the light of divine life, but gives it as well. He not only ascends to God, but even creates gods. Just as the tomb has willed that the inner man he created in his likeness. Now, this is really interesting, because it explains a lot about why different religions and different ideologies arise. You know, in all the sacred texts, you always have this thing of, well, man created, or God created man. But just at the same time that God is creating man, man is creating God. And this is one of the things that I talked about a little bit when I discussed my psychedelic trip, in that these things are not separate. There's no series of events that precedes any other or succeeds any other. All these things are happening at the same time. And at the same time that God is creating man, man is creating God. 
because we have no real picture of what God is, so we create these fairy tales as to what it could be because we can't understand the full magnitude of infinity. So that's what this is talking about. These are then these three. A tomb, cosmos, man. The cosmos is contained by a tomb. Man is contained by the cosmos. The cosmos is the son of a tomb. Man is the son of the cosmos, and the grandson, so to speak, of a tomb. A tomb does not ignore man, but acknowledges him fully, as he wishes to be fully acknowledged by man. For this alone is man's purpose and salvation, the ascent to heaven and the knowledge of a tomb. Now, this is, uh, this is interesting to me because... You know, this kind of goes along a little bit with um, this whole ideology of, of the secret or, you know, making your dreams come true and all that stuff. There's this idea in, in Western thought and Judeo-Christian ideology that, you know, if you want something, you need to ask God and God will give it to you, right? If God thinks you're worthy by his grace, you will receive those things, and that ideology works very well for that particular system with some of the other beliefs and rituals that are centered around that. But the problem with the idea, and again, if you're a Christian, don't get embarrassed or get angry by what I'm about to say. It gives the idea that God can't be omnipotent and omniscient. And if that's true, by pure definition, that being can't be God. Because God is all things in all things, and no thing in everything. And so why would you need to sit down and pray to God and ask God for whatever, a nice job, or for you to win the lottery, or whatever it is that you want? You don't need to ask any of those things, because God already knows that you need them. And so those things will be given when God determines that you need to have those things. Because it knows all things in all time. We're going to dive a little bit more uh, a little bit later on this particular thing because there is another passage that dives into it. So uh, really interesting stuff on that particular piece of the text. And in this next passage we start seeing how some of these two things start intermingling. right? The, the creation of the universe, the nature of a tomb, the nature of the cosmos, the nature of man, and how they intermingle through the process that we deem as death. So, death and immortality. The end of becoming is the beginning of destruction. I love that quote. The end of destruction is the beginning of becoming. Everything on earth must be destroyed, for without destruction, nothing can be created. The new comes out of the old. Every birth of living flesh, like every growth of crop from seed, will be followed by destruction, but from decay comes renewal. Through the circling course of the celestial gods and the power of nature, who has her being in the being of a tomb. Now think about that for a second, because it's saying a lot more than the words are conveying. We often think of death as kind of an ending place. And that's true. For your physical body, death is the end. It doesn't continue. But you're a lot more than just a physical body. You are quite literally an eternal mind trapped in a physical reality. So in, in modern philosophical circles, this would be the concept of consciousness. And I highly recommend you do some work with non-duality teachers and try to get, understand that perspective because this is being written here in this book that's thousands of years old. 
and only now we're coming to understand the same exact nature of consciousness. And of course your physical body has to die, it has to. Its purpose is to procreate, and then you have no purpose in terms of your physicality. And so your body dies, the nutrients get absorbed into the soil, they become plants, plants get eaten by animals, man eats animals, man gets older and dies, and the circle begins anew. There's a lot of really deep understanding of how nature works within this text. It's not just purely a, a philosophical and religious text. That's dogma. This is truth. For man, time is a destroyer, but for the cosmos, it is an ever-turning wheel. These earthly forms that come and go are illusions. How can something be real which never stays the same? We talk about this all the time. But these transitory, illusionary things arise from the underlying permanent reality. Right? So these dualities that we see as true, this notion of good or evil, life or death, good or bad, these are not inherent things of the universe. They're not inherent properties of a tomb. They're simply dualities that arise from our very basic understanding of physical reality. When the world is not physical, it is purely mental. Birth is not the beginning of life, only of an individual awareness. Change into another state is not death, only the ending of this awareness. Most people are ignorant of the truth and therefore afraid of death, believing it to be the greatest of all evils. But death is only the dissolution of a worn-out body. Our term of service as guardians of the world is ended when we are freed from the bonds of this mortal frame and restored, cleansed, purified to the primal condition of our highest nature. Now, you could, of course, see this as kind of a, a view of heaven. And what this is saying is, once you serve your purpose here in the material world as caretakers of a tomb's universe, not only is your physical body absorbed into nature, but your mind... Your consciousness becomes absorbed into the primal mind, into a tomb, into the ultimate consciousness. And of course, this is kind of, this, this leads to some really interesting moral traps. Because if you read between the lines, what this is saying is, what you do here in the material world really has no impact on what happens to you after you die. So in, in Christianity, if you're a good person, then God will save you and you go to heaven. And if you're a bad person, then God sends you down to hell. But of course, a, an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving God would not do this. Like I mentioned in the, first, in the previous episode, I'm going to dive deep into why there's no such thing as evil. All that exists is goodness. But this is what the, the Hermetica is saying here as well. We only assume that these things are evil because we're ignorant. We're afraid to die. Because we feel like, well, I don't know what's coming up next. So you're afraid of it. You're afraid of what may come to pass. And of course, if you're into Eastern tradition, you're aware of the next step of this. In which, why worry about your death when it's an event in the future? It's not here yet. You focus on the now. There's that beautiful Zen story about the man that's being chased by the tiger, and he ends up coming up to a ravine and falls down and grabs onto a vine, and you know the tiger's up 
above him getting ready to eat him and he's like well maybe i'll just jump down and uh and save myself from this tiger and he looks down and there's another tiger at the bottom of of the uh the ravine and he looks over and he sees on the vine that there's some strawberries and he picks up a strawberry and says oh my how beautiful it tastes it's living in the now this is what this is saying don't worry about all that other stuff it's just a physical thing your mind goes on for eternity it is immortal after quitting the body mind which is divine by nature is freed from all containment taking on a body of light it ranges through all space leaving the soul to be judged and punished according to its deserts souls do not go all to the same place nor to different places at random rather each is allocated to a place that fits its nature now we're not going to go too deep into the idea of the afterlife within the egyptians but you have the the ceremony of the weighing of the soul in which the soul is weighed against a feather uh, if you want me to get into that we can uh, this is not the same as going to heaven or going to hell you are just attending to different aspects of a tomb when a soul leaves the body it undergoes a trial and investigation by the chief of the gods when he finds a soul to be honorable and pure he allows it to live in a region that corresponds to its characteristics but if he finds it stained with incutable ignorance he hurls it down to the storms and whirlwinds where it is eternally tossed between sky and heaven on the billowing air now this is not a heaven and hell this is basically reincarnation if you have done the will of a tomb then you regain access to infinity to the fullness of a tomb so you're no longer a perspective a slice of a tomb you become all of a tomb and if you don't do this if you don't follow the nature of the universe the laws of the universe then you're tossed back on earth to try again again this has nothing to do with heaven or hell okay so you're not burning forever you're not in peace forever those are dualistic concepts only a good soul is spiritual and divine having wronged no one and come to know a tomb such a soul has run the pace of purity and become all mind after it leaves its physical form it becomes a spirit in a body of light so that it may serve a tomb at the dissolution of the body first the physical form is transformed and is no longer visible the vital spirit returns to the atmosphere the bodily senses go back to the universe and recombine the new ways to do other work then the soul mounts upwards to the structures of the heaven in the first zone it is relieved of growth and decay in the second evil and cunning in the third lust and deceiving desire in the fourth domineering arrogance in the fifth unbalance and audacity and rashness in the sixth greed for wealth in the seventh deceit and falsehood now of course if you're familiar with dante's inferno you may see some similarities here having been stripped of all that was put upon it by the structures of the heavens the soul now possesses its own proper power and may ascend to the eighth sphere rejoicing with all of those that welcome it and singing psalms to the father if you're familiar with uh, steiner you may be very familiar with the eighth sphere there's some really interesting connotations to the eighth sphere and i do want to do a deep dive into steiner at some point so when i do we will definitely be talking about the eighth sphere the gods that dwell above the eighth sphere sing praises with a voice that is theirs alone calling soul to surrender to the gods and so each one becomes itself a god by entering communion with a tomb this is primal goodness this is consummation of true knowledge having been initiated into immortality a human soul not transferred into a god 
joins the gods who dance and sing in celebration of the glorious victory of the soul. Now let's get into some actual ritual. How do we how do we overcome this uh, this physical form and join the tomb? So from the ignorance of the soul, it is impossible to be permanently happy while attached to a body. This is not a purely Western thing. It's not a purely Eastern thing. It arises in in all systems. A man should train his soul in this life so that when he enters the other world, where he is able to see a tomb, he does not lose his way. Each soul's hope of eternal life rests in his life here on earth, but many cannot believe this, as above, so below. Seeing it as an empty story to be laughed at, for the possessions of this life are too pleasant, and such pleasures grip the soul by the throat, holding it down to earth. Our possessions possess us. I love that. Our possessions possess us. We often think that, uh, you know, we own things, but that's not true. Those things own us. There's a quote, uh, something about, uh, you think you have ideas, but ideas have you. The same kind of concept. You think that having nice things and pretty things and a lot of things is going to make you happy. and It's going to lead you to lead a great life, but what happens after? I mean, if you think there's nothing after, who cares, right? Amass as many cool things as you have, as, as you want and live the best possible life here. But does that lead you to a place where you can become one with a tune? We were not born with possessions, but acquired them later. Everything a man uses to gratify his body is alien to his original godlike nature. Not only possessions, even the body is foreign to our true self. Now I talked about this in the previous episode where I began talking a little bit about ritual suicide within uh, Sufi tradition, and the uh, Cathars, uh, the Cathar tradition, and a few others, where they view, they, they understand the physical body is not the true nature of humanity, that there's more. And the way to achieve full enlightenment is not just to continue meditating or doing prayers or saying alms or reading scripture or doing good deeds, you know, helping the needy. Uh, all those things are nice, and they're steps along the way. But the only way to, to achieve this true immortality, this in true enlightenment, true awakening, true understanding of oneness with the universe, is to get rid of the physical body. And how do we get there? The mind of the cosmos is known through thought alone. A soul with no vision is blind to a tomb's goodness tossed by a sea of passions which the body breeds. What fire burns like impurity? What hungry predator has the power to maim the body as impurity does to mutilate the soul? Can't you see the torture that the impure soul endures? It shrieks, I am burning, I am on fire. I don't know what to say or do. I am devoured by the miseries that possess me. Are not such cries the appeals of a soul in torment? Such a soul beats the body like a burning as its master, not as its slave. Those things that you feel are yours are not yours. You are, you are those things. You belong to those things. And this doesn't have to be just a, a purely, uh, strictly materialistic thing like having tons of possessions, right? Wealth or homes or cars or clothes or shoes, whatever it is that you're into. Maybe books. It could be anything. It could be ideas. Maybe your whole life is obsessed with... Uh, I don't know, the, the government trying to take your rights away or 
the left is wrong or the right is wrong or Republicans are wrong or Christians are wrong or Muslims are wrong or Buddhists are wrong, whatever. Any of these things are what this text is talking about. Okay? They don't have to be purely physical objects. They can be mental objects that take control of your everyday being. Tear off this cloak of shadows, this web of ignorance, these shackles of decay, this living death, this conscious corpse, this portable tomb, this robber in the house, this enemy that hates all that you love, this garment that smothers you and holds you down. Ignorance floods the land. Its currents sweep you away. Don't be borne downstream. Make use of the backflow. Seek the safe haven of liberation. Anchor there and find the guide to lead you to the house of knowledge. There you will see with heart, with the heart, the brilliant brightness. Now, I really like that because that encompasses a lot of different ideas that we've talked about on the podcast, such as having the ability to let go. Letting go is really key in this text. It is one of the central ideas. And they never say, per se, something like, just let go and trust the universe. But there's constant mention of allowing the laws of nature to take course and here you you do have a little bit of a, a water metaphor don't be born downstream make use of the backflow so don't be like a salmon swimming upstream to procreate and then you don't have energy to you know do anything else so you die because you spent all your energy going upstream let the universe take you where the universe is going to take you because where you are that's where you need to be this happens all the time of course we do this all the time. We do this at work, right? We, there's expectations. I have to do this because my boss needs me. If I don't do it, I'm going to get fired. I have to go to my girl's soccer game because if I don't go, she's going to think I'm a terrible father and whatever. All these things are not allowing the universe to work. Just trust in whatever the plan is. We're going to talk about free will at some point, and that's going to be uh, an interesting one as well. Maybe not as interesting as uh, evil doesn't exist, but... It'll, it'll rank up there for some of you, I'm sure. If you shut your soul up in your body and demean yourself by saying, I cannot know, I am afraid, I cannot ascend to heaven, then what have you to do with a tomb? Wake up your sleeping soul. Why give yourself to death when you could be immortal? You are drunk with ignorance of a tomb. It has overpowered you, and now you are vomiting it up. Empty yourself of darkness, and you will be filled with light. Now, again, this kind of emphasizes the point where you're constantly concerned about these things and that you have to do and things that you have to buy, especially now in a very highly capitalistic society that we live in. But you never stop to think and contemplate. And this is the most important thing that I try to say in every episode of the podcast. Everything that I say, you take with a grain of salt. I don't have the answers. If I have the answers, then I would be a tomb, and I am not. I'm just a guy doing a podcast. But the importance is that you gain the knowledge for yourself to understand why you believe the things you believe. And you have to have the knowledge to understand, are those things that I believe things that I believe because I experienced them firsthand, or are they things that other people are making me out to be? If you have no identity, then how can you understand the true nature of the divine, of a tomb, of God? can't because you don't even know who you are you're you're just a zombie you wake up and you do the same thing every day and you don't even think about it i mean some of you i'm sure if you're listening of course you do think about it 
But this is how most people live their lives. And you get this in pop culture all the time, right? I love talking about The Matrix. There's an episode of The Matrix if you want to go listen to that with my friend DJ. It's a metaphor. We're all trapped in this matrix. Are you aware that the matrix exists? It doesn't have to be a simulation. It can be if that's what floats your boat. It could be any variation of the matrix metaphor that you want it to be. But are you aware of the way things are as opposed to the way you perceive them to be? Because the way you perceive them to be, you perceive them to be because other people told you that it's that way. Is that thing true to you is what you need to ask yourself. This is how you get rid of ideology. This is how you prevent yourself from becoming a part of any cult. Okay? And a cult doesn't mean a religious cult. Like, yes, those, those exist, right? Christian cults and New Age cults, alien cults, whatever. Buddhist cults. Those things exist. But any ideology is a cult. Science is a cult. Being a Republican or a Democrat, that's a cult. Are you able to find your center and understand both sides of what it is that you're looking at. Are you able to contemplate two thoughts in one mind? That's the sign of a true intellect, right? F. Scott Fitzgerald. And if you can't grasp those things, then how can you ever hope to understand the magnitude of a tomb, of the primal mind, of God? You can't. You have to become whole yourself before you can do that. Because by having true understanding of yourself, then you can have true understanding of God. There is no greater mistake than to have the power to know a tomb and not to use it. Simply wishing and hoping to know him is a road that leads straight to goodness. It is an easy road to travel. Now this is of course talking about walking the path and knowing the path. Very easy to walk it. It will lead you to goodness. But is that what you really need to do? Everywhere a tomb will come to meet you. Look and he appears at times and places when you least expect, while you are awake or asleep, when you travel by land or water, by day or night, while you are speaking or silent, this is because a tomb is all. Beautiful. I love that passage. All right, we have two more, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Let's talk about the knowledge of a tomb. How can you know a tomb? To know a tomb, you must share his identity, for only like can truly know like. How can you be God if you don't know God? You can't. Leave behind the material world and imagine yourself immeasurably expansive. Rise out of time to eternity. Believe that for you nothing is impossible. See that you are immortal and learned in every art and science. Be at home in the haunts of every living creature. Make yourself higher than the highest and deeper than the depths. Embrace within yourself all opposites, heat and cold, hard and fluid. Think yourself everywhere at once, on land, at sea, in heaven. Imagine yourself unborn in the womb, yet also young and old, and already dead, and in the world beyond the grave. See that everything coexists within mind, all times and all places, all things of all shapes and sizes. Then you will know a tomb. If it is possible to talk of the substance of a tomb, then mind is the very substance. Although a tomb only a tomb knows its precise nature. Mind is not separate from a tomb, but emanates from him, like light from the sun. In human beings, mind produces divinity. Through mind, some become godlike. For as Osiris teaches, gods are immortal men, and men are mortal gods. God, there's so much in that passage. 
so much in that passage. If you're listening and you've been listening to these past two episodes, then you will understand what it is that this is trying to say. This is contemplation. This is the key to the whole thing. I always talk about meditation because it's a concept that everyone can understand. We'll dive a little bit into this when I do the uh, part three the next time. So I'll read from Sukkot teachings and, and talk about mystery schools and mystery traditions. Because all these things, all these concepts arise from mystical experience. And as this knowledge gets passed down, it goes from mystical experience, from a first-person experience, something that you can prove for yourself to be true, to stories, to fairy tales, to mythology, to dogma, to religion. And this is not the way to achieve true knowledge and understanding of what it is that you are and what it is that God is and what the nature of the universe is. Hermes is saying here, you have the power to know all these things. All you need to do is contemplate on these things. Experience these things for yourself and determine them to be true or false. Because by contemplating, by doing true meditation, then you can truly understand the nature of the universe. Of course, some people will start talking about, well, you know, some people have more intellect than others, right? So they're, they're faster learners, they memorize things better, they, they can hold on to more facts, they're more eloquent in their speech, they're better able to make connections between different concepts. Some, some people are inherently born with those things. You know? There's some people that maybe have some mental illness or, or some other disability that prevents them from doing these kind of things. And what this is saying is that none of those things matter. None of those things are true because in your very essence, you have a piece of a tomb inside you. You have part of the primal mind within you. And all those things are completely irrelevant. These are all completely irrelevant. These are all fictions that you created for yourself because it gives you some kind of power over others. You feel like you're intellectually better. You're smarter. You're faster. Whatever. How do you become better? How do you become faster? How do you become smarter? You know, Olympic athletes aren't born Olympic athletes. They're born just like everybody else. They come of a womb and they're babies. And they stumble around and slobber on themselves and poop their pants. Just like everybody else. Now, sure, there may be some genetic predisposition for certain things, right? Some people are genetically predisposed to stronger bones or bigger muscles or whatever. That's true. And the same could possibly be said for brain capabilities. The, the physical aspect of the brain. But those things are irrelevant because they're all physical aspects and not the true aspect of reality, which is pure consciousness. Pure consciousness is the same in every single person. Every single person has the same exact element of a tomb, of the primal mind. But how do Olympic athletes get to be Olympic athletes? Well, I mean, they have to train for many, many years, for decades. And when they compete in the Olympics, they're at their physical prime. Now, if I decided that I was going to start running 
20 miles a day, 30 miles a day, 40 miles a day. There was a point in my life where I did run about 15 miles every single day, seven days a week, without a problem. I can't do it now because I quit doing the practice. The same goes with a meditative practice, with contemplation, with true meditation. Again, it's not a, a Buddhist concept or a Hindu concept or a Jain concept or a Christian concept. These are all they're just ideas. They're not the true nature of things. And you can arrive by the true nature of things by simply contemplating. All you have to do is watch and you will find the meaning of that thing. Seek and you shall find. But if you never seek, you'll never find it. I mean, you might stumble upon some things, right? If you take some psychedelics, you might start getting some glimpses of something. Maybe you, uh, you get into a car accident, you hit your head, you have some kind of seizure, you might have a mystical experience. That's happened before, of course. But you can do this work constantly. Be constantly mindful. Mindfulness is just another way of saying what Hermes is saying right here. Contemplate. And you'll get your answer. I talked a lot about this when I discussed my solo meditation retreat because I learned more in that few days in the woods about myself and the ideas that had been floating around my mind for the past 20 years. I was able to make those connections finally by pure contemplation, by being pure nothingness, just existence. And sure, it may not make me rich or get me a better job, this, that, and the other, but that's the point. Those things don't matter. All that matters is the knowledge of a tomb. Mind is the divine part of a human being which is capable of rising to heaven. The material part, consisting of fire, water, earth, and air, is mortal and remains earthbound, so that he does not abandon the body that he has entrusted to him. Soul is nourished by fire and air, and body by water and earth. Mind is the fifth part. Of course, if you're an alchemist, you'll already be very aware of all these things, which comes from light and is bestowed on humankind alone. Of all the beings that have soul, only human beings elevated by this gift of mind may attain knowledge of a tomb. Such knowledge is not opinion, which is only a poor copy of knowledge. That's very interesting. An echo in comparison with a voice. I love that. That's a great metaphor. Having opinions doesn't just mean, well, I think that tree is green and you think it's blue, you're wrong. That's not what that means. That's not true knowledge. Okay, those are opinions. True knowledge can only be acquired through direct personal experience. I'll repeat. True knowledge can only be acquired through direct personal experience. That's how you acquire true knowledge. Going to school, getting a college degree, all that, that's not true knowledge. And I'm saying this from someone who went to a very good school and who went to college and got a degree. Those things do not give you true knowledge. They give you a path you can walk on, but they don't give you true knowledge because they don't explain anything to you. They just place facts in your head. Very few things that I learned in school are applicable to me as an adult with a family. I didn't learn how to have a family, how to be a husband or a father, a brother, son. All those things are only gained through experience. And this is true of the understanding of nature and reality and God and everything else. Everything else falls from it. You think that 
Einstein went to school and learned all the stuff that he did to make his theories? Of course not. If you read, and I have, and it's very interesting, I recommend you read it if you haven't, but if you read the, the paper he published on the theory of relativity, there's not a single citation in that paper. I'm surprised scientists love Einstein so much because he didn't quote a single other study or research paper or scientist in his work. Because it was all out of pure intellect, pure observation. He was sitting in the patent office. He noticed something and immediately clicked. This is the nature of the universe. He didn't need to quote books or authorities or the scientists. None of that. But of course, the dogma stated that he had to do that. So the interesting, the theory was great. People loved it. It made perfect sense. But where's the proof? Because to him, it was obvious. He had worked the proof out in his head, but he didn't have the, the language, the vocabulary, the symbols to convey that to others. So Einstein had to go and learn mathematics in order to create formulas to explain his very instinctual conclusion to prove it to other people. And Einstein was not anybody special. I mean, the guy flunked out of school. He was working at a patent office, probably making minimum wage. I don't know if they had minimum wage back then, probably not. But Einstein was nobody special, but he contemplated. And through his contemplation, he found one of the most important ideas of the past hundred and so odd years, purely by contemplation. Mind and speech are great gifts that a tomb bestowed on humans alone. Used wisely, they make a man like the immortal gods, only different in that he is incarnate in a physical form. When he leaves behind this body, mind and speech will be his guides, leading him to join the company of gods and other souls that have attained a supreme bliss. Other creatures have voice, but not speech. This is interesting. Each living creature has its own unique voice, but speech is shared in common by all humans. Humankind is one, and speech is also one. Notice the parallel between all these different uh, segments in this in this book it is translated from tongue to tongue yet whether in egyptian persian or greek the meaning remains the same this is because speech is an image of mind and mind is an image of a tomb now this is true speech this is not talking about individual aspects of a culture of a language of a society okay those things change right Different languages have different idioms. If I say you barked up the wrong tree to somebody in China, they have no idea what I'm talking about because they might use a different idiom for, to convey that same meaning. But those are words. They're symbols. They're not the actual thing. right? They're a map, not the territory. You might be familiar with the phrase, the map, not the territory. This is what it's saying. The true knowledge and understanding of the universe is irrelevant of language. But you have to contemplate to get that knowledge. I talk about symbology a lot because symbology is important. Everything that you use to understand the world around you is a symbol. Even the thing that you're looking at is a symbol. So when I look at my computer screen here, I see a computer screen, right? A rectangular object it's black and silver whatever but that's not its true nature right that's the symbol that my brain 
uses to represent this object that exists in space-time. These fluctuations of molecules, which are in themselves just fluctuations of vibration. So that's its true nature. It's just vibration. But I see it, the symbol that I see is a computer screen. And symbols, of course, are important because that's how we convey knowledge to other people. This is why the written language has evolved over time. Because we require symbols to interpret certain things to convey knowledge. But the true nature of it is what never changes regardless of language. As long as you understand the symbology behind it. And we'll go into this a lot deeper when I talk about the mystery schools and the secret teachings. This will be the last chapter of this book. By a tomb's will, mine is like a prize that human souls may win. He filled the great bowl with mind and sent it down to earth, telling a herald to announce, Listen, every human heart, immerse yourself in mind and recognize the purpose of your birth. Ascend to him who sent this bowl. Those that bathe themselves in mind find true knowledge and become complete. Yet they are not pleasing to the mass of men. Of course, if you are deeply entrenched in this work, then people will probably think you're crazy. They are thought mad and laughed at. They are hated and despised and may even be put to death. Now, this is especially true, of course, uh, if you dive into, I would say, 99% of history of Christianity. And not just Christianity, but, you know, Islam does this as well. Many other cultures have done it. It's not exclusive. But we do live in a Western society and Christianity is prevalent, so we'll, we'll use that. If you ever said anything that was counter to what the church said, what happened to you? Well, you were, you were beaten, you were tortured, you were forced to recant your statement, you had to sign paperwork saying that you were wrong, that you apologize, but you maybe still believed the thing you believed in, right? I mean, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. Amazing Christian mystic with deep esoteric knowledge who happened to read the Hermetica, who I would say espoused a message closer to Christ's message than the church at the time, and he was burned at the stake because he would not recant. Right? Galileo, he said, well, the earth rotates around the sun. The church said, that's preposterous. And so you know, he, he did recant, but he kept doing his work because he knew the work was true because he had the first-person experience. And so he knew it was true. This kind of stuff happens all the time, and of course you can get into some issues here because you do get... Something like, uh, you know, in the Bible they say something like false prophets. This does happen. The problem is in the way that it's interpreted in, in that particular ideology. Uh, basically, anybody that doesn't say exactly what the Bible says is a false prophet. But it is up to you to understand what is and is not a false prophet. Okay? And again, it's just a word. It doesn't have to be a prophet, a literal prophet. It's anybody. Anybody that says they have the answer to the thing is a false prophet. Can you verify that through your own first-hand personal experience? And of course, most people can't because it takes a lot of work to get to a point where you can look at the thing without judging it. This is also a very Zen idea of being able to look at an object and not judge it. Where you can see that a thing is not inherently good or inherently evil. It just exists, 
and any duality that arises as a result of you looking at that thing, of you observing that thing, is not inherent to its nature. It's inherent to your belief system, to whatever idea has taken a hold of you. And so when you hear a lot about purification and emptying yourself, and uh, you know that translates into, when you get to dogma, it translates into ritual, like bathing or washing the feet, or you know taking your hat off when you walk inside, taking your shoes off, all these things. These are just ritual aspects of this idea that becomes dogma. But the idea remains the same. So the language is the same, you just interpret it differently because you do not understand the symbology. So you don't need to, to, to know the true nature of existence. You don't need to go and wash your feet, take a shower, put on a fresh set of you know, a white robe or whatever. That's all ritual. It's dogma. It's a fairy tale. Okay, that's imagination. All you need to do is empty yourself of any predispositions to think of a thing to have an inherent quality. If I take this cup of water that I have here, there's nothing inherently good or bad about this cup of water. It's just a cup. But of course, if I get angry and I swing this cup at someone and break their jaw with it, now it's a weapon. Now it's a weapon. It's not just a cup. It's a weapon. Now, is that aspect inherent to the cup? Of course not. So this is true of anything. And you need to have the knowledge and the ability to work through these things where you do not put your own personal dualistic biases on anything in existence. Because existence is pure goodness. We're going to talk about this again when I talk about why evil does not exist. All right, let's do one last chapter in this Hermetica, and, uh, and then we're going to wrap up for this episode. This is called Rebirth. No one can be saved until he is born again. This goes right in hand with what I just said. If you want to be reborn, purify yourself of the irrational torments of matter. And again, matter is also these thoughts tied to your material being. I've talked a lot about in the previous episode about ego backlash. So go listen to that episode. I guess it was two episodes ago. My apologies. But listen to that episode so you understand what this is talking about. It is not purely physical material goods. It is also anything tied to your whatever you deem as yourself that keeps you grounded in material existence, including the ego. The first of these is ignorance. The second is grief. Third is lack of self-control. Fourth is desire. Fifth is injustice. Sixth is greed. Seventh is deceit. Eighth is envy. Ninth is treachery. Tenth is anger. Eleventh is rashness. Twelfth is malice. Under these twelve are many more, which force man, who is bound to the prison of the body, to suffer from the torments they inflict. And this is very Buddhist. Life is suffering. But by a tomb's mercy they may all depart and be replaced by understanding. This is the nature of rebirth. Man, maybe I should have read this before I gave my little speech previously because this just said exactly what I just said. Purification is not a pure ritual purification of washing your feet. Rebirth is not you die and you become born again, right, three days later or whatever. Purification and rebirth happens now. The kingdom of God is within you right now. Not in the future, not a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now. It's right now. The only way for you to do that is you gain the knowledge, 
you understand where your thoughts and feelings and ideas come from, make no judgment on them. Judge them purely on their intrinsic value and not on any preconceived notions. This is the only road to reality. It is the way your ancestors tried to discover primal goodness. It is sacred and divine, but a hard highway for the soul to travel in a body. For the soul's first step is to struggle against itself, stirring up in civil war. It is a feud of unity against duality, the one seeking to unite and the other seeking to divide. Man, I love that. I love that. Of course, it's not an easy road to travel when you have to make your own path. But what it's saying is, don't be afraid to take that step. The only real struggle is making that first step. You have to convince yourself. You have to, <laughs> you have to ride that ox. Remember the turn, 10 ox herding pictures? You have to learn to ride that ox and not let the ox ride you. And when you can ride the ox, you can get rid of these 12 qualities which prevent you from true understanding. Okay, grief, self-control, desire, injustice, greed, conceit, uh, deceit, envy, treachery, anger, rashness, malice. And I like that self-control is in there because this is also a very Zen thing. If you exhibit self-control, it's because you have no control. And that seems posturous and counterintuitive. Contemplate on that. He who is reborn communes with the old father who is light and life. You will only experience the supreme vision when you stop talking about it. For this knowledge is deep silence and tranquility of the senses. He who knows the beauty of primal goodness perceives nothing else. He doesn't listen to anything. He cannot move his body at all. He forgets all physical sensations and is still while the beauty of goodness bathes his mind in light and draws his soul out of his body, making him one with the eternal being. Again. I'm not saying this will work for you, but go sit in the woods for three days and you will get it. To become divine, he must be transformed by the beauty of primal goodness. The womb of rebirth is wisdom. The conception is silence. The seed is goodness. Those born of this birth are not the same. They are of the gods and children of a tomb, the one God. They contain all. They are in all. They are not made up of matter. They are all mind. Rebirth is not a theory that you can strive to learn, but when a tomb wills, he will remind you. I love that. I love that. Have you ever thought about what remembering is? It's you regaining your mind, quite literally. A man may only seek to know a tomb by controlling his passions and letting destiny deal as she wills with his body. Look up uh, the concept of Maat, the Egyptian Maat, uh, Egyptian goddess of destiny. Really fascinating. Which is more than clay that belongs to nature and not to him. He should not attempt to improve his life by magic or oppose his fate using force, but allow necessity to follow its course. Again, this is the whole thing of going with the flow. And don't try to improve your life by magic. What, what's the meaning of magic? Magic is dogma. Magic is dogma. The only true experience is first-person experience. If you want to know the universe, you can. But you have to choose to know it. Going to a church or synagogue or temple or whatever, setting up an altar, wearing your nice clothes, wearing a robe, not wearing anything, getting baptized, having communion, 
This is all magic. It's all ritual. It's not real. It's imagination. It's a fairy tale. For the man of vision, all things are good, even if they appear evil to others. Ah, see, we're definitely going to get there because Hermes agrees. Let me read that again. For the man of vision, all things are good, even if they appear evil to others. When men devise mischief against them, he sees it in the light of his knowledge of a tomb. And he, and only he, transforms evil into goodness. So that wraps up part two of the Hermetica. Uh, again, we're going to wrap up with part three. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be the next episode or the one after, but we'll we'll read off the secret teachings, which is one of the final chapters of this version of the Hermetica. Uh, we'll read off of that, and, and we're going to talk about mystery religions and the idea behind mystery religions, why they arise, uh, whether having knowledge be a mystery is the right way to go about it. I've actually been going back and forth on this quite a bit, and I'll, I'll talk about it in depth when, when we do that episode. But, uh, you know, for the longest time, I always said to myself, you know, knowledge just needs to be free. It needs to be available to everyone, always. And in many respects, that is true. But there is a very valid reason why mystery schools arise. So we are going to be talking about that in length. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. That was part two. And uh, please get in touch with me. Let me know what you thought about this series of episodes on Twitter at MindAlchemical. You can email martin at thealchemicalmind.com. And uh, I'll be back in a couple of days with a brand new episode. As always, remember that you are it.